Will you pray with me? Lord God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this opportunity that we get to come and hear from your word. Humble us as we open ourselves up to your working. And God, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. This we pray in your name. Amen. I wasn't always like this, uh, but recently, I'm one of those guys that loves the book way more than the movie. Before, I used to be the, the movie kind of guy, like the instant gratification of getting to see the whole plot resolved in a nice two-hour period. But now that I'm a little older, I enjoy the process of the book, every intricate detail in the description that the author writes molds these vivid images, uh, these mental pictures for me. And I feel like I know each one of the characters personally. Exactly what they look like, what their mannerisms are, how they would respond in certain situations. But then more often than not, whenever I go to see the movie equivalent, I'm let down. Not by the storyline necessarily, they haven't changed anything drastically, but the characters just aren't as I had imagined them. Now while Leo DiCaprio did an incredible job in The Great Gatsby, he was not the Jay Gatsby that I had in my mind. Neither was Robert Redford, for those of you who saw the older version of the movie. But there was one movie that I watched recently that I just thought captured the characters, the essence of each character, almost to a T. It was Shusaku Endo's novel, Silence, that had been made into a movie just a few years ago, uh, directed and produced by Martin Scorsese. Uh, it's the story of these two Portuguese Jesuit priests who hear that their mentor, uh, Father Ferreira, played by Liam Neeson, had renounced his faith during a missionary journey to Japan around the 17th century. The two priests, Fathers Rodriguez and Garupe, cannot believe that their spiritual father, the one who taught them everything, would ever apostatize, would ever renounce his faith. So they sail to Japan on a missionary rescue mission. And once they're there, they encounter a group of underground Japanese Christians who are living in constant fear of persecution and torture. The imperial inquisitors, those set by the Japanese government to enforce this outlawed Christianity, would tie anyone known to be a Christian on wooden crosses by the ocean's shore as the tide would slowly rise up above their heads. Or they would be hung upside down from their feet for days on end. Horrible, brutal things. But any of these Japanese Christians could stop the torture, could stop the persecution by simply placing their foot on the fume, which was a crudely depicted image of Christ's crucifixion this mere image, if they were to step their foot onto it, everything could stop. Now we, in our modern 21st century Protestant American context, may not see much of a problem with this. Well, it, of course, it's, it's just an image, right? It's not really Christ. 
we aren't idolaters or anything. We don't believe that there is something overall special about an image of Christ. And the Japanese people knew this. They knew that we did not worship idols. But in their culture, to trample on the fume was to renounce one's faith. To show the utmost disrespect and disregard for what the image stood for. See, to step on it was to say, my faith is behind me. It's not important to me anymore. And for some people, like Father Pereira, this was the easy way out. The fastest way to stop the pain and suffering, not only for himself, but for the flock that he was trying to minister to. See, instead of torturing the missionary priests, which was to be expected from Jesuit priests going off into another country, the inquisitors would bruise and beat their own people, the Japanese Christians that were hiding, in an attempt that the priest could stop it at any moment if he were the one to renounce the faith. See, both the book and the movie show the anguish of these priests. Their struggles in seeking God's will as they both mourn and weep for his people. And the book draws its title, Silence, from this looming question of why God can be silent amid the suffering and the injustice. Many of us in this room have probably had that same question. With everything going on in the wor world, where is God in this moment? Why isn't he saying anything? And the Israelites faced a similar type of oppression at the hands of the Philistines, an idolatrous and sinful people. They had picked up on their old patterns of disobedience, of apostasy, of walking away from the faith, the God that they loved and has set them apart. Much of this is recorded during the time of Judges. They go through this cycle of obedience, which leads to blessing, but disobedience leads to punishment which in turn leads to God's righteous anger and judgment. But it doesn't stop there. The righteous anger and judgment always leads back to repentance and restoration. But now where we pick up today in 1 Samuel, the mighty Philistines are breathing down the necks of the Israelites, and after years and years of oppression, Israel is tired. After so long, it's just too much. The easy thing to do in this situation is to go along with the ways of the world. See, going with the current is always easier than going against the current. But then why is it that salmon always choose to swim upstream? Wouldn't it be much easier to go with the current instead of fighting against it every which way? But see, with salmon, there's a familiar scent that each one of them has that they're born with that leads them back to the place of their birth so that they can create new life. And Samuel challenges the Israelites in our passage today by saying that if they really want to return to God, if they really want to have a new and fulfilled life, they're going to have to go against the stream. They're going to have to go up current. As we learned a few weeks ago, 
God doesn't look at us swimming in our streams of life and say, why aren't you further upstream? Look at that person. They're so much further along. No, God looks at us right where we are and says, I see you and I love you right where you are, but I refuse to leave you there. I refuse to let you stay right there because there is new life waiting for you upstream. It's not going to be an easy journey. And we find out that the Israelites cannot do this by themselves, not by their own strength, but by God's alone. So it's Samuel's prayer in our passage today that ignites the change towards Israel's new and liberated life. Our passage today teaches us three things about Samuel's prayer. First, God calls us to pray on behalf of those who he has placed around us. And second, when we do this, God shows up. And he shows up in incredible ways. And finally, we need to acknowledge and remember that this victory does not come through us, not through our own power, but through God alone. See, all this begins with Samuel's prayer for the people. Samuel has now replaced Eli as the high priest following the punishment that we learned about last week. And his current goal as priest over Israel is to advocate to God on behalf of Israel. He steps in as a mediator. In verse 5, Samuel says to the people, Assemble all Israel at Mizpah, and I will intercede with the Lord for you. He steps into the role of intercession for Israel. And we too are called to intercede for others. See, the people were repentant. It wasn't as if they were going about their old ways of living and Samuel steps in to try to smooth it over and say, oh, it's not really that bad. The people are repentant. They know that they have sinned against God and they need a restored relationship. They poured out water to the Lord. They fasted and confessed their sins before the Lord. But then why did they need Samuel? Couldn't the people just tell God directly that we're sorry? That we didn't mean to do it? We didn't necessarily want to do it, but it just kind of happened. Why is Samuel necessary? Now, I've only been married for a year so far, um, but I know if I've done something wrong against my wife, there are very few things, if any, that I can say or do to automatically make everything better. Even if I come to her and say, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done that. Is everything right right away? For us married folks in the room, the answer to that Always no, right? And why is that? Is that because she's holding some grudge over me? No. Because of my actions, because of the things that I have done, the relationship is hurt. And likewise, in our story today, the relationship between God and Israel is hurt by sin, by idolatry. Because idolatry says, this can do what God cannot You fill in the blank. This can do what God cannot. That hurts the relationship with the God who can. So when Samuel steps in to intercede on behalf of Israel, he's attempting to mend the damaged relationship between God and Israel. 
He's acting as a mediator, one who goes in between and settles the terms of agreement. So Samuel's actions of intercession show the need for a restored community, one that looks after one another and cares for one another. It's a two-way street. In the same way that we show reverence to God, God cares for us. We are called to be in a restored community, a community that cares deeply for one another, and his prayers are prompted by a restorative aim. Samuel recognizes that a person can't go on a journey of faith alone. So he prays with confidence that God will move. He knows that Israel cannot do this alone. So if we want to see a restored community here in Northbrook, in our neighborhoods around us, we need to pray for it. Now, that might sound simple. Of course, if we want to see something happen, we pray for it. But we'd be foolish to think that we can do anything without God's power behind it. The Gospel of John uh, records this message that Jesus says where he says, I am the vine and you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And so often we hear that and we think, oh yes, of course. Apart from God, we can't do all these things. I can't do this. I can't do that. It says nothing you can do apart from God. Can you breathe without God? No. You can do nothing without God, and if we try to do all of these great works apart from God, we will fail. Because apart from him, we can do nothing. But then what does this look like in our prayer lives? Are our prayers more focused on us and what we can do? Or are they stepping into the experiences of others? Are they me-focused? Are they we-focused? All too often, many of us get stuck in this routine of self-centered prayer. God, bless me, keep me, and prosper me. Sound familiar to anyone? Whether we want to admit it or not, we have all prayed something similar to this before. But a mission-minded prayer, an intercessory-focused prayer like we see Samuel pray in our passage today, shifts the spotlight from I to we, from me to us. Notice I didn't say those or them over there. Intercessory prayer has a personal touch to it. It's not just, or it is just for people we interact with. It can't be for people who we've never met. To intercede for someone means to step alongside of them, to step into the muck and mire that's going on in their life. And Samuel does not sidestep the Israelites, but he gets down right with them, says, we're in this together. See, intercession allows ourselves to be used by God for the benefit of others. One of my professors at North Park once told me that if you really want to learn about someone's theology, if you want to learn what they really believe, don't just listen to the words that they speak. Listen to the way that they pray. You can learn a lot about someone from the way that they pray. Does that person believe in miraculous healings? Do that 
person believe that God moves in incredible ways? How big is the box that they put God in? Because if someone truly prays that God can do great things and believes in their heart that God can do great things, their prayers are going to reflect that. And you don't have to have a Bible degree or go to seminary to be a great prayer. Uh, One early church father says that whoever prays earnestly is a theologian. And a theologian is one who prays earnestly. Each one of us has our own theology. Each one of us has our own views on who God is. And that comes out in the way that we pray. So if we want to pray for others with power, we need to believe that God can act. Our prayers aren't empty hopes that we throw out and say, oh, I hope this happens. And it probably won't. Our prayers are backed by the God who can. Because when we truly pray selflessly on behalf of our neighbors, not just for ourselves, but for our community, God shows up. Verse 9 here tells us that when Samuel cried out on Israel's behalf, the Lord answered him. And how did he answer? Verse 10, the Lord thundered with loud thunder against the Israelites. If you haven't picked up on the main word in that, it's thunder. It's loud. It's drastic. And it's unexpected. When God shows up, it might not be in the way that we had imagined. Our movie descriptions might not match up with the book that God is writing. The outcomes may be delayed. The answer might be different or come at a different timing than what we had expected. But it is all in his control as the author and perfecter of our salvation. Now, although Shusaku Endo's novel Silence is a fictitious account, He notes at the beginning of the book that these forms of persecution could not be more real. They truly happened during the 17th century imperialism, which was why many missionaries stopped going to Japan for a time out of fear of what might happen. Freedom of religion wasn't introduced into Japan until 1871, and only then did it give all Christian communities the right to legally exist and to legally preach the gospel. When we're in the middle of the muck and mire, whether it's our own or what's going on in our community, it's hard for us to see God's faithfulness amid the suffering. It seems like it's never going to end. And it may not happen in our lifetime, but even in those moments, God is still at work. I have no doubt about that. It may be centuries later before we can look back at periods of God's faithfulness and say, yes, he was there. I believe he was there. Because what do we say? Hindsight is always twenty-twenty, right? But it's in these moments that when God does show up, we need to acknowledge and remember his provision through it all. And Samuel does just that in our reading today. After God comes to Israel's aid with the thunder, with loud bangs. And the Philistines are defeated. Samuel takes a stone and he places it in the ground as a memorial of God's faithfulness. 
And this is something that should be very familiar to us. We have memorials all over Washington, D.C., remembering former presidents, uh, Washington, Jefferson, Lincoln, uh, as well as war memorials like the Vietnam War Memorial, Arlington National Cemetery. These stones to remember are very common to us. And Samuel calls this stone an Ebenezer, a compound word meaning stone of help. And he says, thus far the Lord has helped us. It not only serves as a reminder to future generations to look back and say, yes, God was present in that moment, but it also serves as a milestone in the present generation. Here and now, Samuel drives a benchmark into the ground and acknowledges that this victory did not come by any works that the Israelites did themselves. It was by the thunder of God alone. Now, when we intercede for others, when we come alongside those in our community and we get down with them and experience what they are feeling, sometimes we can become a little puffed up and say, man, I really did some good things today. I prayed for someone, give ourselves a nice pat on the back, feel real good about yourself. But these moments of intercession aren't about us. We can never become puffed up or arrogant because it's God alone who has the power to change hearts and lives, not us. It's his victory, not ours. But when we encounter our own Ebenezers, our own stones of help and remembrance that we look back on in our own lives, it's important for each of us to remember when God was faithful. For each one of us in this room, God has been faithful to some point to bring us here today. We all have a testimony. We all have a story. Whether you think your story is big and exciting or if it's a SparkNote version, God has always kept us on a journey. One of my favorite books is when I was a child uh, was If You Give a Moose a Muffin. Anyone familiar with that one in here? It's not if you give a mouse a cookie, that's a different one. Uh, I always had the moose a muffin. Uh, and for those of you who aren't familiar with this book, uh, it has a very similar, very easy pattern to follow. and goes something like this. If you give a moose a muffin, he'll probably want some jam to go with it. Uh, and when he gets some jam, it'll remember, he'll re remember this or that, or it'll remind him of this or that, and the story goes on with a kind of nice progression. One thing leads to another. And I always liked the fact that one thing led to another. It made sense. It was easy to track back, but it's those milestones that if you take one out, you miss the whole story. How did we get from jam to doing the laundry? It doesn't make sense, but each point that we look back at is a part of our story that leads to the next part. And eventually, it leads us right back to where it all started. It leads us right back to the place where God is intervening in our lives and we are interceding for one another. See, stepping into selfless intercessory prayer follows a similar pattern. When we pray and intercede for others, God does show up. And when God shows up, we acknowledge and remember his faithfulness 
both in their lives and in our own lives. And when we acknowledge and remember his faithfulness, we celebrate with thanksgiving. And when we celebrate with thanksgiving, we go right back into prayer and intercession for others. Because our work is never over until Christ returns. So we continue to pray earnestly with confidence that God can do far beyond what we think is humanly possible. And we step into our neighbor's lives to those who he has placed around us, those who we are called to minister to. So that with prayer, with our actions, their cross becomes a little lighter with us standing right next to them. Let's respond to the Lord now in a time of prayer.